do you want to talk chapter one? I'm gonna. I can talk chapter one if I look at if I get chop, chapter one and try to jog my memory as to what was in it. It's just been. I feel very very frazzled. So we can. Um, or we can push if you want. We can stumble through it. Yeah. Well, either way. If we push, I mean, we both have enough knowledge. I think we'll be okay. I hate to push unless we push to a different topic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, we can start it and see how it goes. Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to push our podcast for sure. We've got some new people, new fans listening. Do we? Yes. Who? Lori Dupree has started listening. Oh, to shout our out! Podcast Excellent. regularly. Yeah. Carrie Beckner listens now, and Lily McClure. Cool. Chapter one: A preacher, a prosecutor, a politician, and a scientist walk into your mind, which I liked. I, it felt gimmicky. I won't lie. Like when I first read the chapter title. I don't know if I have a thing against gimmicky chapter titles, which is weird because I would, I think I would be into that, but maybe I just don't want to be, I don't want to look like a dummy if I don't get it or something. Who knows? But he, he connected it all really nicely, I thought. Yeah. Yeah. So this whole, this first section we're starting here with these next several chapters is all about the individual, which I guess that's right. Lowest common denominator. And the only thing you can control. Yeah. Truth. Truth. Okay. So just to, to kick off, maybe jog your memory a little bit. And it's been maybe a week and a half because I think we we pushed one and then we had some health issues, summer cold. And so I think we'll, we'll ease into it. But I think what Adam is saying here is we switch back and forth between these personas, especially preacher, prosecutor, politician, and the scientist is a side thing, which we'll get into based on the situation that we're in. So we're sort of like tripolar or quadpolar when it comes to really tightly clinging to ideas that maybe don't serve us so well, or even if they're correct, the way we operate around them is is not helpful. And you saw the quote at the beginning of the chapter, which I like, progress is impossible without change, and those who cannot change their minds cannot change anything. George Bernard Shaw. Good way to kick off the, the chapter, or the book. Actually, it distills the whole book all in one quote, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like the idea of the the use of the words, even scientists being an outlier, but the use of the the, the visual or the persona that, that comes to mind when you think about preacher versus prosecutor, like one being needing no proof, no evidence, faith-based, and the other being almost antagonistic. Because it's, it's interesting that he doesn't consider, say, a preacher and a scientist being opposites. It's one that is almost monopolizing on hope and the other that is not even monopolizing on on fact it's monopolizing on antagonism yeah yeah so so the point of the chapter is when we're exposed to an idea contrary to what we believe we go into one of three modes and then these three modes actually work in concert with each other for a, a very negative output so just to recap, and I have it written down here, the preacher mode is when we, when our sacred beliefs are in jeopardy. And so we deliver sermons to protect and promote our ideals. That's what, that's what Adam Grant says. Prosecutor mode is when we recognize flaws in other people's reasoning, and we're sort of trying to craft the perfect argument to prove them wrong and win our case. And then politician mode is when we're just seeking to win over our audience. So this is like a proof by hand waving, that kind of thing. Campaign lobby, if you're just wearing people down, they just agree with you because they're tired of you talking. It's that kind of thing. So we're really 
seeking approval there. So we're we're promoting ideals as a preacher to keep our sacred beliefs in check. We're honing in and trying to nitpick other people's positions so that we can win as a prosecutor. And then we're trying to win approval and hearts as a politician. And again, when you're when all three of these are sort of gelling and, and working against you, th- things can go poorly. I think you don't have to search history too far or Wikipedia or even the news today to see how these things can really run amok. Yeah. So how, what did you take away from those three, those three personas and the way that, the way that an individual uses them for convincing or kind of the platform they stand on when, as compared to when one needs to be open-minded? Yeah, good question. So I think first off, the, again, if we're agreeing that these three modes are, are unhelpful or they rear their heads in unhelpful, inopportune times to our detriment. I tend to go into politician mode more often than not. That's sort of my default mode. And so I think that that's something that's helpful to know uh, about myself. It didn't really take me too long to, to figure that out either. When I when it's broken down into these three areas, I was thinking, oh yeah, politician mode. I've been guilty of all three more often than I'd like to admit, but politician is the, the main one I'd have to watch out for. It's my, probably my jumping off point. If that makes sense. Yeah. I what think mine is preacher. Okay. It's a, which I can is, see that. there's lots and lots of overlap with politician, but I think my jumping off point is it's, it's convincing. It's, there's a, there is some, there is some hand waving and some storytelling and, but it is very much about convincing someone of your, of your side more from the, like the heart or can't you can't you see can't you see the harm being done by not agreeing with me? Oh yeah, sort of approach. <laughs> it, it's almost a like a morality to it. Where yes, a morality. Mine yes. is more superficial. Politicians yes. a little more superficial. Not yeah. in a. I mean, not. We're not saying it's any. All of these are equally bad. <laughs> but They're yeah, all, I, I can see that. Yeah. yeah. So the 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 moral high ground, the artificial, mm. illusional. Oh, that's deep. Mortal, moral high ground, I think, is something I noticed about without having any of these words. It is actually something I noticed about myself when I was becoming a, a younger leader. I mean, going back 10, 15 years ago, um, realizing that even even on Myers-Briggs, I was indexing as a J. I don't index as a J anymore, oddly enough. And people say those usually don't change. Mine actually did. But, but they often only change with like major life events, which happened, which did happen to me. But yeah, this is a, almost creating a, a better than sort of moral high ground probably had something to do with my, my little, little bit off the, off the, off the rails religious upbringing. But I still think I bring some of that to the table of the, this, the, the, con, the method of convincing. Yeah. And I think like everything, there's nuance here that the chapter gets into a little bit, but again, we're not talking about advocating going in and challenging all of your most core held beliefs. And we're not going in saying these modes aren't helpful in certain situations. It's when you favor the feeling of being right over actually being right, and you're using it to cling onto something that's not helpful. And then you've not engaged the scientist first, maybe, which we'll get into in a second. The, the politician mode is, I think it's funny. I'm, I'd like to say that my default there is really stems from my eternal optimism, but that's probably just me being optimistic. Who knows? 
But there's huge risk here. There's huge risk. I think this is a good, a strong start to the book. He came out swinging because, like, we're too busy preaching that we're right, prosecuting others who we think are wrong, and fighting for support that we don't bother to rethink our own views. Too busy engaging in those activities, and a lot of that time should be, or all of that time almost, right, should be spent just almost validating, confirming those kind of things, which I think leads us to the the scientists. When he, he talks about being actively open-minded, which I think is a really important expression, we tell, we, we tell ourselves and others to constantly be open-minded, but we don't we don't include the word actively, which is an important one because it implies this constant vigilance and intentionality and this this need to know that and then what what your triggers are likely to be that would push you into politician or preacher or prosecutor versus being actively open minded. I liked that. Yeah. And and the thing is, if you are a scientist or you are very analytical and the, the idea of you know, we're talking preacher, prosecutor, politician. We haven't really talked scientist yet, but I think you can intuit what that means. I think there's some some people that would resonate with, especially if you're like high detail orientation, would resonate with the scientist. And I think that's a bit of a a bit of a trap because all humans are preachers, prosecutors, politicians in our nature, in our core. When we're it's almost like the fight or flight, right? This is these are the behaviors that we engage in. The scientist requires energy. It's like you're stretching a rubber band. It's always going to want to go back to its original shape. Engaging in the scientist mode, which is constantly aware of the limits of our understanding, doubting what you know, curious about what you don't know, updating your views based on data, being very intentional about the hard work of rethinking, that takes energy no matter who you are and what your profession is and what it, what you would like it to be. And I, so I think maybe don't trap yourself into thinking that you're a scientist by default because that's probably not the case. That probably It's probably just like a, a hidden prosecutor mode, if that makes sense. I remember I remember there being a great story in here about, the, one? One about the Blackberry one. Yeah. I just can't remember the, the details of it. Yeah, I think it was about the keyboard. Like the, the um, yeah, what was his name? Mike Lazard, Lazardis was the CEO and super brilliant, which Lazaritis, yeah. And and the funny thing is, the smarter you are, the harder it is to to be good at this, which is which is not fun. But yeah, super smart, and he just couldn't get past the sort of keyboard on this like physical tactile keyboard. The whole company was like BlackBerry was like the an homage to the the way the keys looked uh, on the physical device, right? Like I think one of the investors early on said, "Oh, this looks like a BlackBerry," and so that was so core to the identity of the product that couldn't help but fight against the the single pane of glass that we all use today. And and reading that from this perspective, I remember that thinking about that story thinking, "Oh my gosh, you you totally missed the but like how could you be that closed-minded? How could you be that married to your own idea that you couldn't possibly think?" And then and just cringing throughout that example. And then, but yet I do the same thing all the time. Yeah, it's hindsight. <laughs> I hate to think how many things I am um, not being open-minded enough about or actively open-minded and just potentially missing out on. Yeah. And and that's, there's a line, overconfidence is your enemy. I can see that in this story. There, there was the other thread around people making poor investment decisions. I tend to have a little bit more 
I don't know if empathy is the right word for that group, but this the the Blackberry example with with Mike, this is an area that he was a deep expert in and created this really innovative product and had this meteoric rise. And so I would say it's like that was like like his whole world, right? People that get swindled by unscrupulous investment advisors are, I mean, they're expecting someone else to run that for them. It's all very trust-based. And so that one didn't quite resonate with me as much. Uh, except to say, maybe buyer beware on that one. I mean, it's maybe it's more of a cautionary tale than the specific example uh, that that happened with BlackBerry. It's interesting that his description of scientist is not is also not the same as what we consistently think of, because there there can be a downside to not to not to having to have proof for everything but in in this context his he 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 does hold the the scientist persona at a very a very high level like thinking about this uh, really kind of referring to the scientists as having the most cognitive flexibility where it's a little bit of a blanket statement i mean to say that the other personas don't so i i understand where he's coming from i I, but I have to, I have to digest it a little bit. Like, hmm, scientists are also not there. To me, they all, they also don't have as much flexibility in thinking as they need to. Drained by the tools that mm-hmm. we have, right? Yeah, and Concerned also by observability, as yes. one example. Yeah, the the limits Versus of technology. Me. Yes, time. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you just can't get to the bottom of. The thing you need to get to the bottom of. Also, one thing that's interesting too is, even if the scientific community, like an, in, as a profession, is completely unbiased, they have a they have tools and processes to eliminate as much as possible. Where they're pointed, what gets funded, the the, the humans behind that can also lead to a little bit of trickiness. And so, yeah, I think there's there's still like a, a caution in that persona as well. I think that's a that's just generally a big takeaway of. Any particular, any particular passion or bent shouldn't shouldn't prevent us from wearing a different hat and forcing ourselves to see something differently. Shouldn't prevent us from considering facts or seeing things outside of facts, like sustaining disbelief for a moment. I guess the whole goal, even outside of these personas, is just flexibility. Just like be willing to think outside of what you understand. And rethink, yeah. It does say we question the judgment of experts when we seek out like a second opinion on a medical diagnosis. And so when you think of that scientist frame of mind, it's almost a frame of mind more than it is a tangible thing. Searching for the truth, running experiments, testing assumptions, discovering knowledge, those kind of things I think are, it's really the essence of what he's talking about instead of an actual persona. Yeah. There is a diagram in the book that I that I remember liking quite a lot. The he compares a the cycles, the rethinking cycle and the overconfidence cycle. And while I we're being very vulnerable today, I don't like to think of myself as someone who is overconfident. I like to think of myself as someone who is um, just experienced. So feel free to laugh at that. The words that he uses with the 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 cycle of overconfidence are true and they're hard to read. So I'll just, just for the sake of the audience, the diagram looks like a clock and at noon, three, six and nine has four different words. So pride is at noon at three is conviction 
At six is confirmation and desirability biases. And then finally at nine is validation. So pride, conviction, confirmation, and desirability biases and validation in an overconfidence cycle. And gosh, I can see myself falling into that trap. It's from a time spiral. To time. I mean, yeah. my goodness. Yeah, it's not a cycle. It's not a circle. <laughs> it's a spiral. <laughs> yeah, pride leads to conviction. Conviction leads to confirmation and desirability bias, which are the two, I, I don't even know if we call them frameworks, but we do try to call those out. Confirmation bias being seeing what we only expect to see or only seeing what we expect to see, I guess is a better way to say that. And then desirability bias, seeing what we want to see. And those are hardwired into our DNA as humans. I mean, we there's no immunity from that. The, the best we can hope for, I think, is to be aware of it and to short circuit when we're in that mode. Yep. And then, of course, validation. Yeah. Which oddly doesn't ever, doesn't, I mean, I can't say never, the, rarely leads us out, out of that cycle or aspire to a point of reality or open-mindedness. That's where the, that's where the rethinking comes in because it just, the val- that, that validation with all that false information just makes us more prideful. I mean, yeah. we've got, got anything and everything going on in the, in the news these days to prove that point out, but. The yeah. rethinking cycle. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was going to put my tinfoil hat on for a minute and, and maybe Please. make the statement. Please. Again, I'll, I'll say it like I'm right, but I'm, I'm happy to be wrong here. I wish I, I, I wish this was wrong. You could take, if you take the overconfidence cycle or spiral and the, the idea around confirmation and desirability bias leading to validation, which increases pride and conviction, you could take almost any position and there is someone on the planet Earth paying a social media company some level of dollars to put something in front of you that confirms your existing position, factual or infactual. And so I think this is really scary because we're there's such a high fidelity, very what's what's the word? Like enticing set of content out there that lures you into this overconfident spiral. And it's happening to you. We used to just worry about commercials, right? But now there are people that you don't know what their opinions are or what they want, paying money to get you to see things. And so I I think you're, and if this is baked into us as humans, we are definitely more susceptible to the overconfidence spiral today than I think any generation in history. Yeah. Yeah. I I was talking to someone, not a joke. So, so confirmation bias, you're going to love this example. I was talking to someone who is a little older than I am. So she's in her fifties and she was talking about her hurt. So this lady is in her, is pushing her eighties, if not in her eighties. And the woman claimed that the reason that she didn't vote for Trump during the election was because of all the memes that she saw. And she actually thought that memes were truth. Like 100% believed this 80-year-old lady that memes were truth. Those memes are terrible. And, and convincing her that memes are not truth was just impossible, absolutely impossible for her niece and family to do. Just, there you go. There you go. Yeah. Thanks for sharing your tinfoil hat. <laughs> <laughs> and And that's true. I mean, we could... When you said that in my head, I mean, and this is this is probably not great. This is definitely not great. There was a level of judgment going on in my head about this person. And then you have to take a step back and realize that this is a transformational new technology that 
this person spent decades, four or five decades of their life without, and then it pops in and you just can't understand what's going on. So I bet that's probably more common than we'd like to think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I, I don't, I don't shame you at all for that because I, I want to do the same thing. I want to judge and say like, no, seriously, how can you not know that that's not real? But how, how would they? Yeah. How, why would you know it's real? Yeah. yeah, Being, being introduced to so many drinking from a fire hose doesn't even begin to cover it. The experience of what so many generations are experiencing with the shifts they're seeing in technology, accessible, accessibility of information, the, the way they used to experience news as only being on NBC, ABC, or CBS. And it was Walter Cronkite was the source of truth. And he only spoke from like five to seven Monday through Friday. And then on 60 minutes, I mean, I'm, I'm extrapolating like way back into, but it's not that long ago that that's how people consumed information. So it, we're, are we any better? Like which, which persona are we <laughs> if we judge them? And, and maybe it's not unreasonable to think someone still thinks the world works that way. Yeah. And you've seen this before. You go to another country and there's just, you engage in a behavior and people look at you like, what are you doing? What's going on here? And you don't know. And then the idea, and, and again, what the book is saying is when you learn that what you were doing was wrong and that there's, when you're over there, you do this thing then you just adapt and, and move on with your life. And, and we do that thousands and millions of times without even thinking about it. Every now and then, though, something sticks, though, like this, that becomes a, a serious issue. And it's a, an inevitable conclusion of not rethinking. Yeah. I like the rethinking cycle as a, at least in theory, as a replacement for the overconfidence cycle. So 12, 3, 6, and 9 again. So humility, moving to doubt, moving to curiosity, moving to discovery the fact that discovery would lead one back to even more humility is a very interesting spiral. Yeah. And I guess because you're confronted with what you don't know, like the the chapter talks about sort of understanding to know what you don't know. And I think when when you start to really be exposed to topics that have such depth to them that you never realize it before, that is a humbling experience. Yep. It's it, I, I like that he starts that entire cycle with humility because it's just not, it's, it can't be overstated how difficult that is for people, for anyone who is intelligent, a thought leader, um, j- just good at something, good at what they do, educated. It, it is really hard to set things aside and say, hmm, I'm just going to take a, a stance of I probably don't know. I'm here to learn. That's a big first step. Can you enter the circle, especially the rethinking cycle, at any phase? So is it good enough if you're not humble at all? And you don't know, like, and saying go exercise humility is like a hard thing for us to recommend. Like, I don't know how you do that. I guess you could engage in behaviors that other people would look at and say that that exposes humility. But isn't that doubt, curiosity, discovery? Like, if if you're naturally curious... Or if you, again, if you resonate with the the prosecutor, maybe prosecuting your own ideas, right? Or steel manning another argument that's a, that's in opposition to you as a form of doubt. Or to go explore the topic more if you're uh, intellectual and you like to learn new things and, and explore new areas. Maybe, maybe discovery works out for you or curiosity for asking questions. So maybe you can enter the rethinking cycle at any 
area, and then it just builds a nice reinforcing loop. I think that's a great perspective. There's nothing in the chapter. There's also there's nothing to even the the specifics of the diagram that say that you couldn't. It's more about what that what that next step leads you to. Like, what next step do you take? Do you move from doubt to conviction and confirmation bias, or do you move from doubt to curiosity? Oh yeah, they're laid on top. You can you can pop up and down. Yeah. Right. Uh-huh. So I, I guess that it requires, it requires mental discipline through, through every interaction, no matter where you jump in. Curiosity, very valid. Curiosity could lead you to more discovery, or it could lead you to a path of validation and confirmation bias and so on and so forth versus curiosity leading you to discovery and then realizing that more that you don't know, leading you to more humility and more searching. And there's, yeah, so maybe if you're, if you think of it as a spiral, up is the direction you want to be heading, the overconfident spiral spirals you downwards. And when you engage in the behaviors of the rethinking cycle, you move upwards. And like with the person that thinks that memes are real, there's quite a bit of rethinking cycle that needs to happen. You can't just loop through once and get there. It's an ongoing thing. You're you're sort of fighting entropy at that point. So in the same way, like your house gets cluttered and you're constantly picking things up, you're sort of constantly need to be rethinking a bunch of little things to move in the right direction. I don't know if that makes sense, but I just, I don't think one cycle is enough. Yeah. 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 That's a really good thought. Both one cycle and the fact that you could, that you could or should be able to enter from anywhere. I like that a lot. Rethinking, the yeah. rethinking cycle. Because he does say our, our biases distort our knowledge, understanding, intelligence, those kind of things. So if you think of like a piece of metal that's all bent or something, it, take, it takes a lot of movement to get it back to where it should have been. It's not just one, one thing. And, and I guess, in fact, the world just doesn't work that way. There's When stuff is misaligned, it's always a, a bunch of little tweaks to get it back into alignment, not just one swift movement. Mm-hmm. Yep. I like that. So several, a couple good takeaways there then. The, that rethinking the rethinking cycle <laughs> and which, which, which persona do we tend to approach our um, ideas from versus being open-minded? Yeah. And then we can practice these things. I think work is the, is the place to practice here. Personal life, you have core relationships. There's a lot more human element to it things are a little less black and white. If you practice this at work, you can take issues that are inconsequential. They're not meaningless. It's it's not unimportant. But the impact, they're, they're inconsequential. You can practice there so that when you are exposed to something that threatens some of the more core beliefs you have, you're in a position to, you've built some muscle memory to address it. Yeah, that's good. That's good. There's also ways that you can measure things differently, set up different kinds of metrics or outcomes at work that don't make sense in your personal life. That's right. That's right. I think work is the place to practice this. Yep. I like it. It's a great insight. So there's a quote maybe we can close on. Was there anything else you wanted to cover from the chapter? No. I think we we did it justice. I think we did. It was pretty good. Adam, if you're listening, you can can let us know (laughs) if if we got it. Okay. So most of us take pride in our knowledge and expertise and in staying true to our beliefs and opinions. That makes sense in a stable world where we get rewarded for having conviction in our ideas. 
The problem is that we live in a rapidly changing world where we need to spend as much time rethinking as we do thinking. That's pretty crazy to me because I don't spend hardly any time rethinking, I don't feel like. That is profound. That's a very, very good quote. I I think I spend some time rethinking, perhaps because of the space that I'm in and even the job I'm doing right now. So building something that is socially impactful and creating measurements around it and having to think about complexity. But the thing I often let get in my way is, is busyness. Rethinking takes work and time and some space. Yeah, it's Um, hard. And the more, the more constrained I get, the less I rethink. I just go with what I have or what I know from, from a past experience. So there, there, there is something there missing around how do, how, how to balance constant change and complexity and rethinking and keep that moving, keep that, keep that forward momentum. I don't know the answer, but yeah, I'll just another awareness from, for me personally of busyness and mental space lacking or fatigue, mental fatigue doesn't just doesn't give me the the space for rethinking. Yeah, I'm actually going to take a note here because I do think busyness and hurry are like rob you of joy in in life. And I think we're all too busy. We're all too much in a hurry. And there's so much value, especially now we're going back to personal life in the in the dull moments. You start adding those up and and they can compound too. So maybe we should talk about that more later because I think there is value in that that margin and and reducing busyness and hurry. So which coming back to our episode would offer more time to to think and rethink. And maybe towards the end too, I, I, there's probably a practice in here. If you're into mind mapping, if you if you're into whiteboarding, like how whatever medium you think in, if you just open up notepad or or whatever, scratch paper, napkins, everybody kind of sticky notes. Yeah. <laughs> we all have our way of, of thinking. There's probably going into that virtuous cycle. What was it called? The rethinking loop, the rethinking cycle. What can you do in that medium to retest an idea? And if you insert it into your, your preferred way of thinking, that might, that might be a good way to, to get started. Yeah, that's good. Cool. Thank you. All right. Well, I'm glad we did this. One. We almost, uh, we almost <laughs> did it today. Yeah. Cool. Chapter one we in do. the books. Love it. 12 more to go. Yeah. 11 more to go. <laughs> I don't know. I'm looking forward know. to it. A lot. Yeah. On it's these, good, I read the chapter right before, so I have no clue what the next chapter is about as we're talking, <laughs> which is, which is pretty exciting. It's awesome. But it's I like awesome. it. This, this is a good book so far. It's mm-hmm. worth the price of admission just based on what we've read and talked about. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. All right. Thanks. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much. Yes. Bye.